Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcoming a child into your family can be life-changing. But for those struggling to get pregnant, the process can be emotionally taxing and enormously expensive. One uncomfortable and invasive test after another, difficult medical procedures, and often immense frustration, because there's no guarantee anything will work. But what if there was another way? From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. Today, we're bringing you a conversation from our Future of Everything Festival, where a handful of medical practitioners and reproductive entrepreneurs contemplated the future of fertility. In this far-ranging discussion that still just scratches the surface of the complex world of reproductive health, these four experts explain why a focus on fertility could change the future for all of us, not just parents and would-be parents, but everyone. That's coming up. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. And now here's Wall Street Journal reporter Amy Doxer-Marcus speaking to a panel of experts from May's Future of Everything Festival. She begins with sociologist Renee Almeling, the author of Gynecology, The Missing Science of Men's Reproductive Health, as well as Stephen Krawitz, the associate director of the C.S. Mott Center for Human Growth and Development. He's studying how sperm can be used to reliably predict future health problems in men, even decades in advance. We've edited this conversation for time and clarity. And an editorial note, this conversation was recorded before the Supreme Court's recent ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this uh, discussion about an important topic. Renee, I'm going to start with you. Great. We hear a lot about a woman's ticking biological clock. Do men have a biological clock too, and should they be worried? (laughs) Indeed, they do. Um, And it was not until fairly recently that biomedical researchers figured out that paternal age matters for reproductive outcomes. And so I think as we start to learn more about men's reproductive health, that more and more of these findings are going to come out. And, you know, it's just interesting to me as a sociologist um, looking historically at the enormous amount of attention that we've given to women's fertility and women's reproductive health, that we've so focused on women's bodies that we haven't asked some of the basic questions about men and their health and how that matters for reproduction. Mm-hmm. And Steve, uh, you know, you've done a lot of research on this. Is there a specific age when men's fertility starts to decline? 
Well, there's a concept coming up, difference between biological age and chronological age, that we are starting to be able to measure within individuals and within the individual sperm. And what you can find is similar to women, Basically, some of the uh, gentlemen have sperm which are very ancient, yet they're very young chronologically, and vice versa. Some are very old, but yet their sperm appears to be very young, at least in the epigenetic marks that they maintain. So can a man go in and get a test and find out if he's young in terms of being fertile, even if he's old chronologically? Those types of tests have not been approved yet. There's still a lot more work to, uh, to go into them, and that is something that we're going to look down in the future. The health of sperm is one piece of the fertility puzzle. Access is another. Angela Stepancic is the founder of Reproductive Village Cryobank, which is seeking to make sperm donation more accessible to black men. You're talking about starting a new kind of sperm bank, but I want to ask you in the future, will we even need sperm banks? Why can't people just connect with each other online and find sperm donors that way? Well, what's interesting is that the connecting with donors online is the present. It's not actually the future. And so right now, people are connecting with people they've had relationships with, friends of the family, colleagues to figure out where can I get sperm. And so the thing is, that's the need is there. The need for the sperm is there. And so that's what we're seeking to provide, especially a need for black donors. And so that's what we're really focused on, ensuring that there is opportunity and access to that for everyone. Why don't sperm banks pay more for donors that they want or that are more popular, like add market forces to the sperm donation market? Yeah, that's a wonderful question that capitalism throws at us, right? Why not just pay more money, throw money at the problem? But the reason black men aren't donating isn't because of the money. It's because of a lot of historic and systemic issues that are in the healthcare community that are preventing them from wanting to, needing to, or knowing about the ability to give sperm. And so how will you make a difference? I mean, I've interviewed a lot of owners and uh, officials at sperm banks, and, and a lot of them are making efforts to recruit donors and going into communities, and it's just not working. They're not able to get more donors. Why, why will you be able to succeed where others have failed? I think there's a big thing that's coming in the future about being part of the community that you're serving and being part of the community that you're working with. And so a lot of times the, the voices and the faces of those current cryobanks don't look like or don't quite understand the issues and concerns that face black people when they enter healthcare. And so for us, we're going to eliminate that as one of the key problems that has prevented us from um, stocking enough in cryobanks. Of course, Anatomy 101 tells us it takes both sperm and an egg to make a baby. Daisy Robinson is the CEO of Aviva Therapeutics. It's a biotech company with a mission to improve women's health by increasing the vitality and lifespan of ovaries. Um, Daisy, I want to bring you into this because uh, you're doing a lot of work on female fertility and we need both <laughs> for the fertility of the future. One of the goals of the company that you're working on is perhaps to delay the onset of menopause in women. Why would a healthy average woman want to delay menopause? So roughly 80% of women who undergo menopause suffer from moderate to severe symptoms. All of women who live long enough have menopause, and actually many women look forward to it because they don't want to have their periods, things like that. So if you are healthy, I think that's a fair question. But the facts are that as your ovaries decline, you stop producing the hormones that maintain the homeostasis in your body. And so what you see with this declining ovarian health is you actually have an increase 
risk of a number of diseases, including a significantly increased risk of cardiovascular disease, immune dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, poor sleep, cognitive decline, and there's just a lot going on that I think we can do more to protect and prevent so that women can have vibrant lives no matter their age and that we're really treating this moment in their life as a significant event where we actually support the fact that your health is declining and it doesn't need to if we have innovative therapeutics that help support that. So instead of though developing a medication that might delay the onset, why not develop a medication that makes the symptoms that women complain about go away? Yeah, that's sort of the strategy that's been used to date. Obviously, we have hormone replacement therapy and a number of other supplements and items that are consumer-focused to address that. But the fact of the matter is two things, really. First, that while we have really focused, as Renee said, on women's reproductive health, in a broader sense, we actually haven't really studied female physiology very successfully or very well. And so there's a lot that we don't understand and don't know about what happens to a woman once she enters that phase of her life. And so if we're focused on the symptoms, okay, maybe we're treating the hot flashes, but what about the whole host of other things that are happening in the rest of her body? So in my view, ovaries are the first organ to really decline with age. And if we can support the ovaries so that they remain younger and we don't have this whole constellation of negative things that happen, that seems to me a better strategy to really address the root cause rather than try to whack-a-mole with the rest of the symptoms that occur at that time. One of the common themes that I've heard in some of the things that you've said now leads me to think that there is a potential now that we're going to delay the age when people have babies or even enable people to have babies at much older ages. I'd be interested in hearing you know, your thoughts on, is that a good thing? Who wants to jump in? Feel free. <laughs> I, can, I can jump in. I think that we as, as a people are already having children later. I don't think that it's about preventing or moving in that direction. It's just more about seeing where we are and how can we figure that out. Yeah, and I think also it's, from our perspective, it's really about health span. How do we expand the years of life that are spent in good health? And so when you think about having babies later, I think obviously there's a lot of things to consider. But if we're able to preserve health for longer, then it wouldn't be as difficult. So it's kind of this balance of how are we achieving this? Why does that matter? Birth control and IVF, it's allowing women to have more control over their lives and to have equity in the way that they live their lives and in their careers. And I think it's really important to continue to support that. I will jump in here and just, you know, and the, some of the inequalities that Angela, you were referring to in your comments. I think as we think about the range of fertility technologies and reproductive decision-making that people are making at various stages of the life course, that we also be mindful of the ways that these are gonna be shaped by the various intersecting inequalities that we have in our society. So the health inequalities and the economic inequalities and the racial inequalities, that all of these are really shaping who's going to have access to these technologies, who's going to be able to delay their fertility, and who's not going to even be able to have access to basic reproductive health care, including contraception and abortion. Those really deep inequalities that shape every aspect of our society are also going to appear in, in these realms. 
looking towards the future, I think one of my hopes would be that as we think about reproductive health, as we think about fertility, um, that we're thinking sort of very holistically, not only about women, not only about men, but about the health of everybody, um, whether or not they're having children, quite frankly, you know, the health of, of all of us and the structural changes that we would need to make to really kind of encourage and, and make possible a greater population health. Up next, why sperm could hold the key to diagnosing some diseases in men, and the potential downsides of a world where doctors collect more personal health data around pregnancy. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Steve, I actually want, I'd love to hear your thoughts because one of the things that we've discussed is your vision that men in the future, when they go in to the doctor for an annual physical, which I, I hope they do, <laughs> I know there's also disparities on that question as well, but that when they go in, in addition maybe to the doctor asking for a routine blood sample to measure cholesterol levels or urine specimen, will they also be asked to, on a regular basis, provide a sperm sample to make sure that their sperm remains healthy throughout their lives? From a single sample right now, you can get a 360,000 points of data from each individual sperm, and that's quite a lot. And from that, you can tell a whole host of things. You can first of all tell whether, and they're still working on this, but whether an individual is fertile. And if you can identify a male that is truly fertile, then those couples that present typically at a clinic of idiopathic infertility, so that means that the infertility is unknown, you can then test the, father, uh, test the, the, uh, the male and find out whether he is fertile. And if he is, you can do something quite innovative. And that is just have basically timed intercourse, setting up a defined time. In our small little trial that we did, we found out that we could actually partition out those individuals who were fertile, use timed intercourse, and were successful. The advantage of this is, is that lessens the treatment that a woman has to go through in order to start a family. So that's one avenue. The other avenue that you can trace with all of these data points is you can get an idea in terms of the health of the father. For example, if you are an infertile male, you actually tend to present prostate cancer about a decade earlier in life. Yeah. Lastly, but not least, you have basically a record of all the RNAs that at least were present in sperm, so all of the things that were transcribed so that they could be used. That then tells you in terms of if there are any phenotypes, so any types of genetic diseases that might be associated or changes that have gone on in that potential genome. And so this allows us a way to give a, an individual a yearly health checkup or even in every five years in terms of what, where they are in their current status of their genome. From a sample that is basically obtained in a non-invasive manner and sample that's easy to examine after. Wow, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I was actually thinking when you said that, that many points of data, uh, Renee, like, 
Do you have any concerns that this type of data could be used in a pernicious way also? I mean, potentially flagging people knowing a lot of information about things that are considered private. I mean, are there any concerns about privacy related to this increasing data gathering? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting and important question. Um, thinking about sort of, again, the history of reproductive interventions, reproductive data, your question could be posed to any sort of health data, which it sounds like, you know, this is sort of basic health data. But we can find numerous examples of women being prosecuted for their behavior during pregnancy, for example, that if they were not taking care of themselves or doing drugs and there was some damage to the fetus or the child... And so I could imagine sort of in a like not so happy future, taking some of the, the information that we would learn from sperm or from men's health and that being used uh, to surveil, um, criminalize, marginalize people who are already, you know, marginalized in various ways. And so I'll just take that as an as a opportunity to say, again, one of my hopes for the future would be um, that we would learn lessons from how we've talked about reproductive health for women um, and not sort of individualize and stigmatize and marginalize men as we bring them into this conversation about fertility and reproductive health. But I think it gives us an opportunity, the sort of newness of men's reproductive health to really rethink our public health messaging about reproduction much more generally. That was sociologist Renee Almeling, part of a panel discussion at the Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything Festival. The conversation was moderated by Wall Street Journal reporter Amy Doxer-Marcus. It also featured Stephen Krawitz, the associate director of the C.S. Mott Center for Human Growth and Development, Daisy Robinton, the CEO of Oviva Therapeutics, and Angela Stepancic, the founder of Reproductive Village Cryobank. Let us know what you think. Should there be additional protections for health data connected to pregnancy? Tweet us at WSJ Podcasts. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by Caitlin Nicholas. Jessica Fenton is our sound designer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. And Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Danny Lewis. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.